Oké, okay. uh, welkom allemaal. Um, ek is Robert Amblin en langs my is Anastasia Thompson. Um, Anastasia, ek sê dit in Afrikaans. <laughs> Speak into the mic. Um, um, Anastasia, let's do an introduction what the book says, although she resisted this. Um, but just to start, Anastasia grew up in Johannesburg and so did I. And she graduated as a medical doctor from the University of Pretoria. I didn't do that one. I became a vagabond artist. And this is not about you, Robert. Oh, so okay. <laughs> okay. She has worked as a general practitioner, practitioner in both the public and private sectors, and also as a freelance journalist. Anastasia has a passion for advocacy, activism and advocacy with a specific interest in promoting access to health care for transgender and gender non-conforming individuals. Um, Anastasia is also my kleinsis. Um, nie my bloed kleinsis nie. Maar ek noem al my kleinsis, um, want ek, soos jylle seker nou weet, Anastasia is a transgender persoon, en ek is ook a transgender persoon. Um, ons is net op verskillende spectrums daarvoor, ons wil graag Soos kinders was ons seker van mekaar gesê het, ek sal jou lijf vat, wat jy meen, he? Um, en um, ek noem al my klein sis, want ek het activisme begin met transgender issues, um, jare, jare terug toe Anastasia nog, hallo uh, Elmerie, <laughs> gestudeer het, en probeer seker uitfigur het, hoe om hierdie ding, haarself in die wereld in te launch, En so nou, tien jaar later, en organisaties later, en ons is nou in een tijd in die wereld waar transgender trend, um, het Anastasia has emerged, and written this beautiful book, and um, so I feel a little bit responsible for her because I went ahead, but it's all very, not very well placed, because she doesn't need me. <laughs> All right, I just want to start out by asking um, how many transgender people are there in the audience? Any other transgender people here? No? Okay, how many people in the audience have a transgender family member? Okay, one. That's a first, actually. Okay, when I ask this question. How many people in the audience know a transgender person? Okay. Wow, wow. We've come a long way in the 10 years I've done this. Yeah, no, these, they're progressive. They don't need us. <laughs> let's go. All right. So, um, Anastasia, I'm going to ask you to just, let's, I'm just going to start with two things. Can you please explain to us the difference between gay and trans? The difference between gay and trans? Yeah. Wow. So, we're going like right back to the fundamentals because yeah. we use this you know, I'm sure everyone here is familiar with alphabet soup. You know, we have LGBT, and then we just kind of start tacking things on. And we have Q, I, A, plus, plus, whatever. Um, it really is alphabet soup. And I think the problem is, you know, society kind of looks for boxes to put people in. And there's two really big boxes out there. There's kind of the box for the N-word, which is normal, which I think is a swear word. Um, that means that you're cisgender and you're straight simultaneously. And there's a box for everyone else. And whether you're gay, whether you're trans, whether you're intersex, you get lumped into that box and it, it really just serves to other you. And it kind of... I have mixed feelings about labels because I think labels can empower us. Labels can represent sort of solidarity and commonality and tell you that you're not broken. There's a word for that. 
you know, you're not abnormal. Um, at the same time, labels can be used to sort of marginalize us and invisibilize us. So the differences between sexual orientation, which really has nothing to do with me, it's got to do with you. It's what I'm attracted to, who I'm attracted to. It's, it's not about who I am. And identity, that's who I know myself to be. Identity belongs to me. Identity centers around the self. And you just kind of lump all of that together because it's not normal. I know, I've just through years of having that confrontation, when, you know, whenever people know that I'm trans, then they, then they always say to me, yeah, no, I've got a gay friend or, or that. And it's very frustrating because, I, and then I, through the years I've sort of taught, taught them to understand that um, sexual orientation is about two people, mostly. Most people need another person in their sexual orientation, right? Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, but gender identity, the thing that is our challenge, is about yourself and when you're alone in front of the mirror. You know, am I a man? Am I a woman? And, yeah, so... And then you said another word that I think we need to clear out with everybody here is what does cisgender mean? Yeah, so... Cisgender, it's, it's, like C-I-S gender. I mean, it's very simple. It's like, what's your gender? Ach, cis. You know, that's, that's what <laughs> cisgender... No, C-I-S. <laughs> All right, so I don't know. How many Latin aficionados do you have in the crowd? Uh, yeah, no one, whatever. Give me a break. All right, so, you know, you remember back in the old days, the cis guy and the trans guy, right? One was on this side, the same side, and one was across. So cis means on the same side. It means you identify with the sex that you are assigned up. Because, you know, isn't that what we do? First thing, as soon as a baby comes out, we kind of hold it up by the legs and look in between and congratulations, it's a boy, or congratulations, it's a girl. Or in my case, congratulations, it's a Jew. Um, <laughs> that's really, you know, we, we make these assignations, we assign things to people without their consent. Um, so that's cis and trans. And, and coming back to that idea of normal being, a, you know, I'm... I'm work as an activist, I do a lot of seminars and workshops and I educate service providers. And I often tell them, in my life as an activist, cisgender is the single most important word in my vocabulary. Because if I don't have cisgender, I'm left with trans and normal. And I, I think that rhetoric is completely flawed. So by having these words, we kind of do that little bit in addressing the stigma. I also like the word cisgender. It's very useful because I think trans activists, you know, develop that word so that it's not in that old-fashioned way of everything is centered around um, the person that is having the challenge. So, you know, you're gay or straight. Like, gay is not straight. Um, and they actually turn the lens back to where the power is. I, I give you a word, um, and so you're cisgender. I could also have called other people non-transgender, but then it would be in reference of myself, right? So there's always that argument. Do we refer to people as non-transgender or do we... But the word cisgender has taken off. It's a hard sell in South Africa, of course, because it sounds like cis. And so you have to explain to people the cisgender and cis sky and trans guy. All right, so as trans people, we always get a lot of um, silly questions. But as activists, I think we have to, you know, most often have love and, and deal with that. And some of the silly ones I've had is, uh, when did you know? Why did you do it? 
How far are you? Oh, I never got, I never understand that one. Have you had the operation yet? And, and, and are you an hermaphrodite? And what's wrong with Castasemenia? And, and, and what if you want to go back? Back where? From where you were far? And, and why did I never see this coming? And so we always have all these responsibilities, but I want to comfort you. We have a doctor in the room, so all will be revealed today. And so I um, would like to read a little piece out of Anastasia's book that was really moving for me. Uh, what was it, page four? No, that's not page four. I just have to look for it, sorry. Um, <laughs> where is it? Um, I'm not finding it, so I'm going to go back to questions. I'm going to ask you a difficult question. Bring it on. <laughs> Yesterday was International Women's Day. And so I'm going to ask you something that men, men ask me all the time. Something that I couldn't possibly answer. And it's a trance question. One of those that we're always responsible, responsible for. What is it like to be a woman? What is it like to be a woman? You weren't kidding. It is a hard question. And there isn't a, there isn't a straightforward answer to it. You know, the problem that I always have when people say, what is it like to be a woman? Or what is it like to be trans? Or what is it like to be something? How do we answer those questions? We always do it in reference to something else. And this is one of the concepts that I, I try to explain to people. You know, I don't know what it's like to be a man. I was assigned male at birth, but it, that was something that never fit. I don't know what it's like to be cis, so I can't explain what it's like to be trans. This is all I've ever known. Light and dark exist only because they are in opposition to one another. If you don't have that contrast, how do you, how do you define one or the other? So to tell you, I, I, I struggle to answer the question because I don't know what it's like not to be a woman. This is my experience. This is what I've lived. Have you found your passage? Yes. <laughs> thank you, Alvary. Yes, thank you for that. I think, um, but I'd also like to add to it that not all transgender people have the same experience. Um, from reading your book, it was so clear to me that the feminine is your experience and that the challenge, I mean, I, I read something beautiful that you said on, on one of your blogs about how testosterone had ravaged your body. And as a transgender man who only started taking hormone treatments at the age of 35, you know, I went from, you know, having essentially a female body to this picture that nobody can ever contest my masculinity. And so I understand the absolute power. And then I was wondering what that felt like if you're not, because to me it was absolute joy, of course. But what does yeah. that feel like when testo testosterone ravages your body and you're not a man? Well, I mean, we, we have two very famous sayings in the trans world. We have estrogen is the best estrogen, that's for trans women and trans femmes. And then we have testosterone is the best osterone. And it just <laughs> kind of depends on your perspective. Uh. Um, but, you know, I, I, I speak about being a survivor of testosterone poisoning. Because that's what it is. It's, it's this chemical compound, this molecule that is doing things to your body that are unpleasant and distressing and confusing and without your consent. And it's that loss of agency that I think is, is one of the potential tragedies and avoidable tragedies in so many trans experiences. I mean, we are all different and your mileage may vary. Um, but the fact of the matter is, for a lot of us, it's about what's done to our bodies without our consent. And that's just a, a manifestation of that. 
All right, so I've asked you about being a woman. Let's stay on that, um, on, on, on that topic. And so you talk about your family a lot and in the book and your mom and some aunts and female friends and, and how, you come in, how you came into that circle. And so talk to us a little bit about how you grew up, the woman around you that influenced what kind of a woman you are today. And yeah, and your mom. And yeah, anything about how you grew up and the femininity that you were exposed to that influenced you and inspired you? You know, I think a lot of this kind of became clear to me only in retrospect, but growing up, role models were always female to me. And a lot of that has to do with my own, my own personal upbringing and the dynamics in my family. And, you know, I do go to fairly great detail about that in the book. I had a very complicated relationship with uh, an emotionally abusive father. I didn't, you know, I always just kind of attributed it to I don't have positive male role models in my life. But the process was a lot more complicated than that. The process was I struggled to identify with male role models because there's something there that doesn't fit. And, you know, of course, when you're young, you don't necessarily have the tools or the resources to interpret things like that. You don't really put two and two together. You know, it didn't occur to me, oh, why am I struggling to relate to real, to male role models? It's because I don't identify at all with masculinity. And I didn't experience that at the time. And I mean, as you know from reading it, the, the dynamics in my family were complicated. And I had this very sort of stilted relationship with my mother from a, an early age. You know, it was, I was really, I found myself kind of wedged in between my parents and the conflict between them. And it was difficult to, to kind of form the foundation for a strong relationship from that. And a lot of that process of growing up was just about learning to be self-sufficient. And I think it came at the cost of maybe devoting some energy towards understanding my identity. Because when you're just trying to get by and fly under the radar and not be trouble to anyone and just attract as little attention as possible, it doesn't always leave you that space for introspection. And especially, I mean, you know, now we're sort of starting as a society to move slowly towards the point where words like transgender actually exist in our vernacular and maybe someday, maybe we'll teach them to kids in school. But, you know, certainly for for my generation, for your generation, these were things that, that no one spoke about. Or if they did, they did it in hushed tones. You know, you kind of knew these are words that you would never ever want to use in reference to yourself. So you didn't even think about it. I know, and of course, I've asked you one of those questions trying to trap you into telling me that you played with dolls when you were small and <laughs> all kinds of stereotypes people expect of us and which you don't have to offer. I mean, you were in, there's a part in your book where you describe where you went to a doctor and there's always all these narratives they expect of us to prove our gender. Yeah. So, yeah, you didn't have that and you didn't have it to offer and your doctor was really disappointed. I had all that stuff, though. I was, like, playing with guns and stealing my brother's, like, little toys and he would get upset with me. And But funny enough, you're talking about the time that, that we live in where things are changing. I also understood when I started getting my medical treatment that, um, you know, I didn't want to fall into those narratives. I didn't want to be... Um, I uh, didn't want to be some stereotypical male. And so I resisted telling the doctor that kind of stuff too. 
And of course, yes, that makes our lives pretty difficult, doesn't it? So, yeah. Yeah, I suppose it makes you a better trans person than I am because you fit the the typical picture better than I did. I mean, I would have loved to play with the Barbie dolls, but I didn't have them, you know? You didn't and have I, a sister. Yeah, I think that's the, that's the line in the book. Did you play with your sister's Barbie dolls? No, Doc, I didn't. I don't have a sister. Well, that's no excuse. You know, and that's, that's really the kind of thing. It's, we didn't necessarily have the freedom. And, you know, you, you said something earlier that really resonated with me. One of those lines that you always get from people is, oh, well, I didn't see it coming. That's what you said, right? And what people so often fail to realize is for a lot of us, the pressure to stop you from seeing it. You know, that's really what it's about. I mean, we're masterful actors, aren't we? Well, yes, that's, gender is a performance. Um, it's something I, I had to learn. It's one of the biggest performances that we learn, and we learn it from the time that we get our name. Um, I remember when I just started transitioning and there was this time when I didn't quite pass as a male and it used to, you know, really scare people. People get frozen around you. And of course then I was afraid too. And then I ran into a professor at UCT who works with gender all the time and she said, oh, hi, I've heard about you. You're Robert. And, um, uh, and so tell me, like, people are, like, staring at you and they're kind of frozen around you and that, right? And I was like, yeah. She goes, you know what? I know what's going on. I was like, oh, thank God. Finally, somebody knows what's going on. And she said she's been doing courses all her life with people with gender. And she often asks them the question, um, have you ever met a gender ambivalent person? And, of course, everybody says yes. And then she'd ask them, and what would you do? And they would say well, I would, look, I would look for breasts or like a knob in the pants or some beard on the face or something just so I could understand what it was. And she said, you know, Robert, people had all kinds of different answers through the years, but there was always that one word. There was two things. There was always the word it and there was always the confusion and, and anger. And she explained that what she felt that it was is that people do not afford you humanity if they don't know what your gender is. And so what she wanted to give me in that moment, and I'm sure you've gone into those moments yourself, is like you have power in that moment. You're not without power. In those moments, you could comfort someone, you could shame someone, you could actually run away because they're frozen. And yeah, that gave me a lot of encouragement. Did you have times like that when people were frozen by you and, and you know, or were aggressive with you or... Yeah, you know, I'm I'm speaking the book a lot about coming out and I I think that the entire concept of coming out or that disclosure that you're trans or you know that in I suppose in our case just that openness that we are trans um it really tells you more about the people that you're interacting with than it tells them about you. You know, for me this is this is my life, it's my existence, it's what I do. I'm I'm out there. I don't try to hide anything and I'm not ashamed. Um, but a lot of those prejudices and those sort of reflex reactions come to the fore when people find out these things about you. And, you know, I, I definitely appreciate the idea that, that we do have some agency and some choice over what we do with that. You know, whether we, we really want to, am I allowed to swear? Can I say the word fuck? Whether you really, fuck, 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 whether you really want to fuck with someone and mess with those expectations. And I think it's a double-edged sword because 
you know, once you start down the road of trans identity and you start speaking about dismantling the binary and all of this, it's kind of like, well, am I a bad trans person because I identify completely as a woman and I have this very binary identity and my presentation is very much on the femme end of the spectrum? You know, do I have to be more androgynous? Do I have to act more queer? You know, should I be should I be fucking with those ideas a little bit more? Am I am I neglecting my responsibility? You know, at the end of the day, it's this personal choice, and I think this is this is really what kind of stands out about this discussion for me: is what are the obligations on a trans person in society, and why are they different from anyone else's? Why do we have to be the activists? Why do we have to be queer? Why do we always have to be screwed up in some other way, have concomitant mental health problems, be depressed or anxious or borderline or whatever it is? Why does there always have to be all of that baggage and we can't just go about our day-to-day -day lives? Why can't we go to the same bathrooms that everyone else does? And I think that's really the question. You know, if you, if you choose to take up that mantle and for whatever reason you make the decision that, yes, I want to mess with those expectations, I think it's fine. But for a lot of us, that sort of idea that we're supposed to and those reactions that we get from people, you know, it, it really just comes back to that idea of othering and pushing us into those boxes that, that say that we're not normal. Well, I'm trying to get a personal story out of you. <laughs> you know, have you experienced prejudice and, you know, people that are mean to you and, and that. But of course, you know, all those stories are in the book about confrontations Anastasia had with friends and people around her, friendships that worked out, friendships that didn't, and the way she negotiated it. But I, again, three o'clock this morning when I was awake thinking about what we need to do today, I read this piece again where you come out with your, with your, with your mom. And it's this really painful description of how you coax your mom to go and have, you know, a lunch or a coffee with you. And, and you know, I remember that same thing about telling your mother. Um, it, it's this long, long, you describe it so well choosing the right moment to actually say it and what words you're going to say and then the painful thing of not, you know, you rehearsed it so many times and then you don't use the words that you had chosen. So anyway, and then of course, you know, the questions and, 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 and like your mother says, couldn't you rather just have been gay? Oh God, my mom said exactly the same thing to me. But then later your mom sends you a message, an email, and I'd like to read it. Um, Hi, A. <laughs> Thanks for lunch and sharing your rather devastating news. I'm heartbroken that you've gone through your whole life so far, feeling that you had to keep it all to yourself. I will support you however I can, so please don't alienate me, as you have done these past years. I might get on your nerves at times, but remember that's what mothers do. Nothing is insurmountable, and you don't have to do it alone. I love you lots and lots, very, my very, very special child. <laughs> I was really moved by that because I have become a father in the last few years, and I think essentially that is the thing that would hurt me the most if I thought my child was having pain on her own. And I'd also like to read what you, you later said about why you hadn't told her. I told her that I never wanted her to see me hurt or broken, for fear that I may worsen the guilt she carried, 
that I didn't blame her and I held no resentment and that for so long I had wanted things to be better between us, but I didn't know how to change them. And as my mother put her arms around me, I cried in front of her for the first time in many, many years. Um, thank you for writing all that. Um, it, it helped me a lot in my relationship with my own mother when I, I read these things to her. So thank you for that. <laughs> all right. I don't know. What would you like? Yeah, I don't know if the, I don't, don't know what I'm supposed to say to that. It's just laying it all out there and... You know, I think you said you wanted personal stories. I mean, the personal stories are there. You know, it's, it's, we don't exist in isolation. And it's true for all of us. It doesn't, you know, some of us have certain relationships with family members or with friends or with, but it, for all of us, no one exists in isolation. And I think that's one of the sort of unique nuances of what we go through is just trying to, navigate this intense inner personal conflict and at the same time you often feel like you have to carry the burden for everyone around you and it's it's a difficult difficult space to be in you know you're trying to to handle all of this trying to deal with all of the revelations about yourself and what it means and at the same time you have this worry and this concern and this sort of burden about what is it going to do to the people around me and so often we end up compromising because of that and everyone just kind of loses in that situation it's like why did you hide this from me well i didn't want to hurt you but you've hurt me by hiding it and it's it's there is no easy way so with my mother, when I told her, my mother was like, yeah, yeah, well, that's not a lot of news to me. And my mother, you know, did this funny thing where she got, she got scientific. <laughs> and she started saying, well, I always knew there was something up with you because you started getting smelly when other boys got smelly. When other little girls were still smelling nice and that. And I was like, mom, I'm sure that's not science. <laughs> and so... That's, of course, something that happens a lot around trans people. Our identities are extre extremely medicalized because we need to access medicine. Well, you know, when, when we are on the binary the way Anastasia and I, and we need to, to access me medicine to come to a point with our bodies where we are, we are more comfortable and, and, we, and we are, it's easier for us to, to be who we are. And so <laughs> I, in the car, I said, to, okay, we've got to give people a little something of that. They want it. Just, you know, please, I'm a crowd pleaser. We've got to give them a bit of science. And she's like, of course, being the doctor immediately goes there. And, and then I challenge her. And I'm like, you're an artist too. You know, give us some art. She goes, well, what exactly do you want to talk about? I said, well, one day I heard somebody say that all of our genes actually have both sexes on them. And I can't remember what this person said in this whole scientific thing. But as an artist, I got this picture in my head of a washing line with pegs on and that genes are like a pig on a washing line. And when hormones, and so the, the pigs are this way on the line at the moment, and hormones are flushing over the top and flushing at the bottom, less estrogen at the bottom, more testosterone at the top, and it's keeping that balance. So the plug just, the, the, the pig just stays that way. But then, so you're a boy and you're a boy, not a girl, not a girl. But then you get other cross hormones and actually genes fire and they turn around and they start delivering, you know, the other side that is each and each body. And I will just let Anastasia answer you what she answered me. <laughs> 
Yeah, so I, I have to quote myself here, and I, I said to Robert, I think that that is a mix of bullshit and fairy tales. Um, and I, I, I stand by that. And, you know, so often, just like Robert says, people subject us to this kind of scrutiny. And, you know, again, because there's this idea that there's something inherently wrong with being trans. You know, what caused it? Where does it come from? What did I do to make you like this? Or what happened to you to make you like this? Or was it programmed in you? And the danger in that, you know, I say I, I like to think of myself as being an intersectional queer feminist. Um, it basically just means that you don't want me at your dinner party, but <laughs> nonetheless. Um, and if, if after that you do still want me at your dinner party, then speak to me afterwards. We can be friends. Because um, I need more. I don't have any because I'm an intersectional queer feminist. <laughs> <clears throat> thank you. Thank you. Um, I do weddings and bar mitzvahs as well. But, um, you know, really the, the idea that identity has to be validated by some kind of biological process or phenomenon is so extremely dangerous. And, you know, I, I kind of see it as a Pandora's box because if you find this elusive genetic marker or you find this theory that explains why some people are trans and some people are not, I mean, the next thing that happens is that we start testing unborn babies for it and we'll start getting rid of all the trans kids before they're even born. And then after that happens, we're gonna start testing the, gen the, the general population, we're gonna screen them and say, who's trans? Oh, we'll find out, you have the latent trans gene. Yes, yes, we know what's gonna to happen to you. You know, when people start to come out and they wanna access treatment, we're gonna subject them to these tests and you know, if they pass, they get access and if they, if they fail, then they don't because they're not trans enough. And it's just an extension of what's already going on, this policing of identity, kind of saying, are you good enough? Do you get access to what you need? Is your identity valid in the eyes of society at large? And you know, you, you touched on this a little bit earlier, you mentioned something about passing, and before you used to pass as a male, and now you pass as a male. And you know, ultimately that's about people looking at you, making a judgment, and determining on the basis of that judgment what level of respect or dignity they will accord you. And I, I, I don't think that we can ever say that there, are, there is some set of arbitrary criteria that make that okay. Yes, I think essentially all of our experiences is that the medicalization of identities is just a burden. And um, yeah, thank you for that. Okay, so um, <laughs> no talking about about that stuff. So let's go back to <laughs> to gender then, because you can't, you, you know, you just refuse all of that too when I ask you about it. And I'm going to read a little thing. Let's on move on to men, um, and a part in the book where you come, you have a discussion with your your brother, and you tell him that um, he didn't know what the term meant. Or if he did, he didn't want to. He stared at me quizzically for a few moments and I couldn't stop myself. Do you know what that means? No. I don't identify as male, you said. So what does that mean, he says. I mean, I don't feel like I was ever supposed to be a man. I still don't understand. I was silent for a few moments, my resolve already flagging. It means I am a woman. I have always been and I'm going to live my life as one. I could see the confusion in his eyes. I'd known the revelation was going to shake him, but I didn't know how he'd respond. I'd expected confusion, shock, maybe even sadness. What I did not 
had I not been prepared for was hostility. In the minutes that followed, I felt like I was on trial, trying desperately to plead my case to an unsympathetic jury. There's no rule book for handling a loved one's coming out to you as a transgender person. But if there was, Leo would have broken every rule in it. I was subject subjected to an array of, I don't see it. How do you know it? What if you regret it? Interspurts with the occasional, I want to support yous and a few, I'm just worried about yous. I was, soft, I was softly spoken and thoughtful in delivering my answers, clearly starting to weigh, weigh on him. His in, interjections were curt and he spoke quickly as he hunched over the table as if, it, as if to interrogate me. I knew he didn't mean to upset me, but it was difficult not to feel persecuted. Had it been a discussion with anyone else, I'm sure I would just have pushed back as hard as I had been pushed. But Leo was my big brother, to whom I'd looked up my entire life. I'd known that there were differences between us, that I'd struggled to reconcile. But I had always respected him, and I couldn't bring myself even to think of fighting back. He was relating to me from the position of a man, and I to him from that of a woman. And in that moment, those differences between us became so much more apparent to me than ever before. I wanted to grab him and shake him and burst into tears and say, this is what I mean. And I told him that how to tell him had been weighing on me for a long time. And then you, there's more talk. But then what happens is he sends you, this is the thing with your family, they send messages later, they've got to go process, right? Yeah, they always, they always got it wrong in the moment. And then afterwards they're like, geez, I really screwed that up. What am I going to do? Send her a text. So he sends you a text and he says this. And this is again one of the parts in the book that made me like weep. Weeping is really hard for me because... Sorry, this is going to be medical, but since I've been on a testosterone treatment, for some, I mean, there must be something happening in the body, but my tears got really thick. And so when I cry, they just get stuck in my eyes. So it's like having a pair of thick glasses on, so I can't read when you made me cry. I have to go somewhere and squeeze them out, literally. So don't think men don't cry. It just doesn't flow as hard as it does. And please don't contest that, doctor. I want to read what made me cry to you. Your brother said, I'm very proud of you. I can't even begin to understand what courage it must take to be as honest and as true to yourself as you are. I love you and I'm here for you, no matter what. Chat soon. And this time, the tears tasted less bitter. And so I wanted to ask you to talk a bit about masculinity. Um, you know, you talk about your father in the book and that very difficult re relationship that was never really reconciled even though you did tell him that you loved him before, you di before he died. But then this beautiful thing that happens with your brother. But I want, I mean, here you make it so clear that standing in the face of your brother's hostility made it very clear to you that, you know, this is not who you are. But you, what was your experience of masculinity and what people, a feminist, we spoke about feminism a moment ago, feminists often confront transgender women with that, like, you know, you've had male privilege, you can never be a woman. Talk to us a bit about toxic masculinity and male privilege. Yeah, it's, it's an important discussion to have, and I think, you know, we're all sort of socialized in certain ways, and it's based on those expectations that people have of us, again, based on what they see in between our legs when we're born and you know people say well you were socialized as a male and and the retort that i give is yeah people tried to socialize me as a male and it just didn't take and you know the fact of the matter is i you know people say women are so difficult to understand and i always just thought masculinity is difficult to understand i don't get it you know i have to i have to 
perform. I have to do all of these rituals. I have to try and blend in. But it feels so inauthentic to me. I don't, it's unnatural. I don't understand it. You know, I, I speak about how one used to sit on the couch and I'd be perched on the edge with my legs crossed like that. And I'd catch myself and say, oh, men are not supposed to sit like that quickly, you know, kind of unfold your legs and sprawl out and like, you know. I had that moment just now. Like, <laughs> I'm sitting right? like this and I was like, oh, maybe I should be more masculine while I'm here. Yeah, that's, like, oh, that's the start. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, and it, it was always very difficult for me to understand because it's, it's the entire way that you relate with the world around you is sort of colored by it. And, you know, you speak about having to kind of force those tears out and squeeze them out. And, you know, some of that might be because they've been thickened by testosterone, but sometimes it's just because what will people say about you if, if you're embracing that and the tears are flowing? You know, what does it call into question about your identity or about that masculinity? Because what do we associate with what do we attribute to masculinity what are the behaviors and you know this is this is that policing of gender again you know what is allowable for someone who is masculine and what is allowable for someone who is feminine and what are the consequences for people who sort of break those rules and i was very scared of those consequences for many many years and you know the the fact of the matter is my closest friendships were always with other women but I often found myself in situations, social settings, where I had to sort of interact with the men and be one of the boys. And it got to the point where, you know, I speak about some of the relationships that I had in the book. And, you know, I was in a relationship with someone at the time. And I would tell them before I entered into these situations, you know, I, I have to put on this act. I was aware of it. I knew that there was this performative element that I have to pretend in order to fit in, in order to be read as typically male, because otherwise people would start asking questions. And I was aware of the energy that it took from me in order to keep up that pretense, you know? And it was difficult, it was draining, but I, I couldn't take the leap and say, well, you know, why do I feel this disconnect with it? And I think the challenges are kind of unique to everyone because, you know, whether you're a cis man or a trans man, or whether you're a cis woman or a trans woman, you know, there are expectations that you're subject to because of your gender. And some of them fit and some of them don't. And when we start to, when we are seen visibly to be in conflict with that, the consequences can be quite terrifying, I think. I'm sure you've experienced that. I think, I think the thing that I discovered a lot with my transition was how power flows through everything. Um, everything is about power and gender is how we situate power in the world. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people say, you know, women, often when I have this discussion, women go to me, well, I, you know, I'm a woman and I don't feel any less powerful than men. They don't have more power than me. And my answer often to that is, is yes, of course, you're probably a privileged person and you're probably middle class and you are emancipated, but that's your departure point you were still departuring from a point where society told you, made you quite understand very well that you have less power than boys do. And it's all subtle, and it's all programming, and, and that kind of thing. We, we're so good at it, we can't even see it happening. Um, and, I, and I mean, that is one of the reasons why I asked you earlier. I was, because uh, I've heard this so many times from transgender women like you, is that when you step into being a woman, I asked you, what's it like to be a woman? 
and there's a part in your book where you where you talk about that, where you're standing in a shopping in a, in an aisle at checkers or something, and you have that realization of now is the time when people are starting to take power away from you. You you know, and of course you you come back from that in an incredibly powerful way. But yes, power, and and suddenly this power that I've got to stand in, um, and. When, when you transition and you start having hormone therapy, you pretty much go through a, a second puberty. And so, <laughs> I, you know, I don't know what happened to you, Anastasia, but I was pretty much misbehaved like a teenager for one or two years where I was not very popular. Also, no more dinner parties for me. Don't worry, you're going to get over it soon. It'll pass rather. <laughs> no, no, it's seven years later. I'm okay. I'm a father now. But, um, but yeah, that, my idea of what masculinity was was all about misbehaving. It was about having things that I couldn't have before as a woman. Um, you know, yeah. that space was always so uncomfortable for me. And I think the story that you're talking about, um, you know, when we, when we walk through a crowded space or a, a shopping center or something, you know, I was maybe if I'd, you know, if the conditioning had taken, if I was like, oh, I'm this... I'm this powerful man, I have a right to be in this space. I always took up less space than I was supposed to. I was always the one ducking and diving out of the way. You know, I was always the one offering to clean up the table and do the dishes after dinner. And if you want to talk about gender norms and things like that, we can get into it. Um, but the fact of the matter is, I was always very acutely aware of male privilege because it was so uncomfortable for me. And it's almost a, you know, I, I, I speak about this indictment on society and these these very twisted emotions that we feel, especially as a trans woman, because so many of the validating experiences that you have, so many of these affirming experiences as a woman are so utterly misogynistic and degrading. And, and you have this dichotomy of, oh, I've been read and affirmed as female, but at the same time, I've been so degraded and humiliated by whatever has happened. You know, you get catcalled in the street, and it's like, how do you find affirmational validation in that? And, and it's the sick reality of the society that we live in. And, you know, trying to deal with the complexity of those emotions is one thing. You know, on the other hand, it's also the, the liberation from those expectations of masculinity that always felt so very far and so very uncomfortable, so, so very restrictive and painful. And, you know, all, all I can say is that it's a, it's a very, very complicated space to be in. So interesting to me that you said that masculinity to you was restrictive because that was my experience of being a woman. And I mean, there's a lot of data, feminist data to back me up there <laughs> that, you know, like many of my friends, um, feminist and lesbian friends and were like upset with me. Look, you know, you just want to be a guide because you're going to take the easy way out. And I've sometimes felt, well, maybe it's going to be because that was my desire. But of course, landing inside of masculinity was it's not easy at all because I was expected to play all kinds of negative roles. And especially in South Africa, where a white male has a certain persona and a certain profile, and the more I became conscious of that. So talking about white masculinity and men and um, um, activism, I want to move on to the topic of white men. Let's move on to activism I wrote here. Um, <laughs> activism, the things that we have to undo. Um, one of the decisions you made, in, and, and you, you describe it beautifully in your book, is not to go stealth. And it's something that, that, that I related to. And stealth means in transgender terms is like, you know, the airplane is not going to disappear. Everybody's going to always know what your past was. 
Um, and so because you, you, you wanted to be an activist. And so we both come from activist spaces. And so when Anastasia's book came out, there was a lot of criticism. And including mine, I was like, what is this now? Why does somebody like her get to read, a, you know, have a book with her, um, you know, with her legs on the front, performing femininity? And there was all these discussions about privilege, privilege, privilege. And it's something that happened to me too. I was a founding member of the, the first sort of formal transgender organization in South Africa. And, you know, I had typical white male rescue syndrome. I was like, yeah, I'm starting an organization. I'm going to help people. And um, I very quickly realized that people that need help in South Africa are not me. I'm not the person that needs help. People that, that, you know, that need organizational assistance and, and the system are poor. They are black. They are children. That was the most shocking thing that, that was my discovery, is the devastation of transgender children and the things that, that happened to them, especially at the intersection of that black, poor child. You know, they, I worked with a group of children. They become sex workers and they start using drugs at their teenage years and they get lost to their families. And so the criticism on us, of course, is like, who do you think you are to be an activist? And why do you get to have a book? And, and, and another thing that we spoke about earlier, I asked you, has anybody ever mean, been mean to you, ever been tried to, you know, try to kill you or, or, or something because of your identity? And we both, our, both our answers when we had this discussion earlier was no. Because, and we know why, it's because of privilege. But I think I'd like you to, to address that, that, that issue of privilege and, and publish, being published and, and, and your life as a privileged, privileged transgender South African. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's a... It's a concept that I have wrestled with and continue to wrestle with on an ongoing basis is what is the role of a white upper middle class college educated woman with passing privilege nach all um, in navigating a space as an activist. And it's very difficult because, you know, on the one hand, we've got it easy. You know, if, if we decide we're going to go disappear off into the bush somewhere, no one is any the wiser. We live the same sort of cushy lives that we would have been able to had we not been trans. And it's, it's a luxury that so many people don't have. And the challenge that I have, of course, is, you know, how do I use the platform that I have access to, you know, because I can write and I have the ability to get a book published and I can sit on a stage at Wordfierce and have people in front of me listening to what I'm saying. And how do I use that voice so that I'm not speaking over the voice of other people, but that I'm trying to facilitate or move towards a reality where those voices can be amplified. I don't think there's an easy answer to it. And, you know, we, we speak a lot about some of the, the painful experiences that we've had. A lot of them are due to or tied in very intimately with the concept of reflection. You know, looking at ourselves and sort of questioning what a lot of other people take for granted. And again, I don't want to be on a high horse here, but I, I think that if you take the time to introspect and to reflect and to be critical of yourself, and, you know, Goddess knows that it's not easy to do it, it's a very difficult and very draining process to sort of be, turn that critical lens onto yourself and say, how can I do better? Um, but if you do it, 
I think it does make a difference. And I'm, I'm not suggesting that it's easy. I'm definitely not suggesting that we have all of the answers because a lot of times I think, you know, you speak about that divide between people who are the most oppressed and whose lives are quite frankly in danger. You know, that's, that's the reality for a lot of trans people in this country. They live in fear of their lives. They don't know if they're going to be sexually assaulted, if they're going to be murdered, if they're going to be beaten in the streets. And you and I don't have that. But we don't know what the needs of those people are. We don't know. And the only way that we find out is if we go out to them and engage with them and ask the questions and then do something with the answers. So again, you know, I've realized I have agency and power and privilege as a storyteller and as someone who's got a medical education and, you know, all of these things. But the fact of the matter is, in addition to what I do sitting here speaking to a room of also, again, predominantly white or white-passing people, um, you know, I also try to, to find avenues where I'm able to engage with the community or to work with groups who are engaging with the community and to say, well, how do I use this in order to move forward? And, you know, I've done maybe not as many as you, but I've done a shit ton of interviews and podcasts and appearances here, there, and everywhere. And the one thing that I always, always, always say, my experience is not universal. I'm not representative of trans people. I don't live under the illusion that I am. You know, I'm here telling my story, but the reason I'm telling you my story is because I want you to go out and listen to other stories. I want you to find those stories because they're out there. I want you to give them an audience. I want you to say, yes, these narratives are important. And yes, these are the stories that should be published. These are the people who should be on stage. They're not all, they don't all look like me, and I know that. And you know, I, I, I hope that we're working towards a future where you and I will be sitting in the audience, and there will be people who don't look like us on stage talking about their experiences. I think we have a role to play in, in creating that. And I think that that role is something that always changes and that we have to keep questioning. I had that struggle myself, and I, I work with a group of transgender sex workers at SWEAT, uh, the organization SWEAT. And um, I had an exhibition, I took photographs with them, and I had this exhibition one night where everybody was invited over, and so the room was filled up with all these interesting transgender people. They were all dressed up like they would when they go work, over-feminine, you know, sorry, that's, they'll smack me if they hear me say over-feminine, that's just how they, they work clothes. I mean, I'm talking big golden shoes, and they're prancing around there, you know, like upsetting everybody because they're so sexual, and, and yeah, they, the performances was quite amazing. And then I had people on the panel, and so I pointedly chose some academic people that were going to criticize me for this very thing about being privileged and white and, you know, acting as of, I'm a hero. And, and, but also one of the girls that I worked with, I gave the last word to, and she's very tall and very beautiful and very dark. And she had a pair of high, shiny, golden shoes on. And she started marching up and down in front of the stage. And she spoke with a, a Cape Town accent that I didn't even know what she was saying. It was so strong. And she was specifically talking to some um, Cape Town people that, that, that are academics. And then she turned around knowing that she had spoken such a Cape Town dialect. And she said it to all the white people here tonight. 
you all criticize one another for privilege and whiteness and all those things. And I sometimes think you're actually trying to get out of your job by doing that. She said, you know what, we're down here, and you trans people that have already, white people who have already transitioned, you're ahead in time, okay? And you're privileged, and you're up there. And what me that means is that you are close to people who have power to change the world. So do your goddamn job. You're not getting away with it. And I was <laughs> like, all right, that's what I need to be doing up here, now, making those, those links. And believe it or not, we only have 10 minutes left. I still wanted to talk about so many things about spirituality and changing the, you know, transitioning on the job and the, and the, the most amazing um, people in your life that, that went through this journey with you. But I guess one would have to read the book to hear about Jonathan, who was the doctor that you worked with. And um, that yeah, very, very complicated, intricate thing that happened there. But so we'd like to, to turn it over to you for some questions and... Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm you know I I'm I have such mixed feelings over the word brave because I mean isn't it always applied to us and you know I say to people was it was it really brave what I did? Was it really brave for me to to take the steps that I needed to in order to save my life? Was that brave? That was survival instincts. I mean, we've all got it, you know, and I think the one thing we have to tread this kind of fine line between what I call inspiration porn and just the, the freedom to live our lives. And, you know, again, when you find yourself in this position, it's, <clears throat> you almost wonder, am I, am I sort of selling out to that? Am I giving into it? You know, when I sit here and I tell my heart-wrenching, inspirational story to the masses and then we market it as a paperback and, you know, is that, is that really kind of just caving into those demands? And I think, as with so many things, it comes down to, well, in which way does the power dynamic lie? Who has the agency there? You know, so I'm, I do contend the term brave. It is brave. But again, I don't know any other way to be. If I hadn't done all of this, you know, we'd be having this discussion at the cemetery. Robert would be, would be laying a wreath for me or something like that. And I think that's the sad reality of it. You know, so many of us, if we choose to embrace our truths, we're, we're seen as brave and it serves to just objectify us. But the point is taken in the spirit that it was, that it was spoken. And, and I'm very grateful for that and I appreciate it. Um, but just food for thought on the idea of, of the bravery and the courage and, and we just want to live our lives. Isn't that what it comes down to? In the back. I'm, I don't know if I'm the best person to ask or I'm the worst person to ask. You know, I said I was assigned Jewish at birth and, you know, I speak a lot in the book about some of the struggles that I had reconciling my cultural and my spiritual identity, um, with the rest of my identity and the queer identity and, and all of that. And I think in a lot of ways, the Afrikaans community and the Jewish community and probably a lot of other communities, I can't speak to them because I'm, I'm, I don't have the details. Um, but I think a lot of these communities sort of have this conservatism, which is an extension of patriarchy, um, sort of embedded in their values. And I like to challenge that. I like to say, well, you know, I, I do have... Jewishness in my heritage, or maybe Robert will say he has Afrikaansness in his heritage, in his identity. It's a part of who he is. It's a part of who I am. But I reject the conservatism. You know, I, I reject that idea that we have to exclude people based on certain criteria. I say that any cultural identity or any faith that I claim as my own does not have, does not subscribe to those principles. 
And I think it's it's both our jobs as queer people. I, I don't like to use the word job, but I you know I think as someone who's openly queer and openly assigned Jewish at birth, whatever it means, you know, I say religion and I are seeing other people, or I say I tried to divorce Judaism and it didn't take, or I say, you know, our relationship status is it's complicated or whatever it is. But I'm trying to figure it out, you know, because I've realized it's part of me and I can't let it go. But I think, again, as people who are sure, if you've got a family member who's trans, if you know someone who's trans, if you are queer or whatever it is, then you might have that vested interest. But I think also just as people who are progressive, people who are living in a world in 2017, who identify and say, yes, I'm Afrikaans, or yes, I'm Jewish, or yes, I'm a member of this group, I think it's part, part and parcel of our responsibility to question some of those ideas that we have associated with them and to say, well, why does being Afrikaans have to mean being socially conservative? Is this in line with my ethics and my values, and do I have to relinquish my cultural identity in order to be true to my principles? Hell no, I don't, right? Anybody else? Yeah, I mean, I, I can speak on this for hours if you want. Um, you have two minutes. <laughs> great. You know, I think the... I think there's some fundamental misunderstandings that we have. And really what it comes down to, you know, you say respect for other patients and, you know, how do we not make them uncomfortable? You know, why would you be uncomfortable? Where does it come from? We, that's what we should be interrogating. And the fundamental ideas that we've built all of this up on, you know, when we sort of marginalize and we, we see people as a threat, that's, that's really where the problem is. You know, and, and the fact of the matter is, it doesn't matter whether you're in the men's room, the women's room, a unisex bathroom, or whatever it is. Um, if you are trying to stare at someone else's junk when they're doing their business, you are a pervert and a sex offender and it's illegal. So it doesn't matter if it's a man doing it to another man in the men's room or if it's a man in the ladies' room or whatever it is. And it comes back to this idea, this flawed idea of the binary. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this, you know, we... we as you know, in, in the medical establishment, we love to have these like intake forms and we say, you know, sex, MF, tick a box, whatever it is. You know, and I, I like to, when I do sensitization training for healthcare workers or for clinics, whatever it is, you know, and I say, here's an easy way to make your clinic more inclusive. Take out that field, say gender, put a blank line, let people fill it in. And then people will say, oh, no, but the, the information is medically relevant. Is it really medically relevant? Because if you tick a box that says male, do I know that you have a prostate? No, I don't. You might have had it removed, you might have had your entire lower half amputated in a car accident, might have been born without one, whatever it is, it's an assumption that I make. You know, if, you're, if you tick F, do I know that you need a mammogram or you don't? If you tick M, do I know that you don't need a mammogram? Men get breasts, it happens. You know, so a lot of these assumptions that we make are, are built on flawed principles. And I think it really rubs me the wrong way in the medical establishment because we kind of like to purport that we subscribe to this idea of evidence-based medicine, right? You know, we're all scientific and whatnot. Well, science tells us that one in 50 people are intersex, but we still put M and F on our intake forms. So, you know, it's kind of a double standard that we wave around. And I think it just comes down to rethinking the way that we do things and getting over the perceived consequences. Actually sit down and interrogate the consequences. What happens if we don't have men's wards and women's wards? What happens if we use gender-neutral restrooms? What happens if we let binary-identified trans people use the facilities that they identify with? 
Does anything bad actually happen? No. There's the evidence. Let's act on it. <laughs> That's where we'll end.